I'm Laura Linney, and this is Watch If You Dare. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, I four, five, legion. six. I give you treats. I give you tricks. I am Lucifer. And that has been our Masterpiece Theater with Lauren acting as Laura Linney, star of The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and also Masterpiece Theater. And also Mothman Prophecies. And also Mothman Prophecies, yeah. <laughs> I was joking about that off air with Lauren. So welcome to Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by myself, The Coward, and movie monster boy, my co-host, Aaron, in which we discuss horror movies, just see how scary they are for me, and how good they are, and how much they hold up for Aaron, and we discuss the fears folks and cultural relevancy that goes into each of these films. As you can tell, probably our most common guest at this point, my lovely sister-in-law Lauren is joining us again. Hi, Lauren. Hi, guys. Yay. It's great to be here. Good. I'm glad. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and with that, Aaron, how are you? He's eating. I'm eating dinner, so I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> You've sounded like, I forget what's his face from Men in Black. The sugar water. Yeah. Give me so much sugar water. <laughs> D'Onofrio. That is D'Onofrio. You mean, if I hold my face like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's fucking great exactly. in that movie. Pet cat. <laughs> you know, as far as like non-horror movies go, that parts of it scared the shit out of you as a kid. Men in Black scared the shit out of me when I first saw it as a kid. Really? Uh, with some of his scenes, yeah. Oh, man. I always loved D'Onofrio in that role. It was just so ridiculous. Oh, it's good. It's great. So, um, with all of that out of the way, we are going to do our recommendations section, like we always do up top, in which we talk about other horror media that we've consumed, be it other movies, TV shows, video games, books, etc., etc., and we recommend it to each other as well as your audience. Hopefully you hear something that you may want to check out yourselves. Guests always go first, so Lauren, I hear you have quite a lot for us, which is great because Aaron is a slacker this week. So, I have actually been watching a ton of horror, but I've been watching it while I work so it's not necessarily the best kind of way to take in a work of horror but I do have four things I want to talk about and my first is a solid recommendation I hope so I recently saw the trailer for this game at dead of night which is on steam I think it's like 15 bucks and I have not made it very far at all but I really really like it and I'm so excited to keep playing it I have to play it at like 10 a.m. when the sun is shining and it's not spooky it all outside because it's pretty creepy. The premise of the story is you are in a hotel and you're trying to hunt for ghosts and pick clues and kind of build the sense of the story. But while you're ghost hunting, you are being stalked by a murderous psychopath who's trying to kill you. So it's really spooky. It has this really good blend of FMV and CG. So I hope it stays good. I can't guarantee that it doesn't, you know, have a terrible ending that tanks the game, like something else I'm going to talk about shortly. But I highly recommend at least looking into it if people are at all interested. It seems like a really great game so far. Okay. When I first saw gameplay of it, when you you'd recommend it to me, I saw that like a lot of it looked like it was inspired by The Shining, which is interesting, like kind of the design of some of the hotel, as well as the idea of ghosts being around and trying to solve the mystery of this hotel, but then having like a Jack Torrance-esque psychopath following you around and trying to stalk you. Kind of. I think it leans a lot more towards psycho like psycho is the huge vibe i get from it that makes sense too but yeah because i did send you guys the trailer and it's a really solid game so far so again i can't guarantee that it stays good all the way through haven't finished it but i'm super excited about it and the developers deserve you know
know as much attention they can get because it's a really solid game so far. Now, uh, recommendation number two is I watched a movie called Ghosts of War on Netflix. And this is a movie where it's about American soldiers in World War II who are stationed uh, and they have to protect this old mansion in France. And as soon as they get into the mansion, spooky stuff starts happening and it seems very haunted. They start getting all the usual horror movie things that start happening. It's a really good and very good looking movie. It's staged very well. It's very nice to look at. It's also very well acted. It does kind of have a twist that's sort of telegraphed pretty early on where you start to get the sense that like everything isn't quite what it seems with these guys in the house and the situation, but it does go in a different direction than I was expecting. So that was actually kind of nice. So the twist is not that they're the ghosts, at least? Yeah, no, they're not the ghosts. Okay, I was was just about to ask that and make a joke, and I also was also about to make a joke, and now, listeners, Lauren is going to spoil the twist. I'm not going to lie. The first time I saw The Others, I watched it with a friend when I was like 13. And again, Lauren's going to spoil the twist. Five minutes in, I was like, oh, they're the ghosts. Yeah. And then that's what happens. Spoiler alert for this movie from the 90s. Yeah, that's always disappointing when you can like immediately see what's going on. And then it's even more disappointing when it turns out that you're correct. Exactly. We were just discussing this one recently, and I'm not going to spoil what the twist is or anything, but we were talking about Shutter Island. Oh, yeah. And I knew from the very beginning when he did not take the cigarette that was offered to him exactly what was fucking going on. And, like, that's all I'll say, because there's no other context that I just gave that, like, gives that spoiler away. But I knew from that exact moment, God damn it! like, that's what's happening, isn't it? Ah! So, yeah, it's always frustrating when those kind of moments happen, and just, that's all there is. I'm gonna feel like a big dum-dum when we cover that movie eventually, and I don't get the twist, like, in the first few minutes. I mean, honestly, I think I'm a big dum-dum with movies in general, where unless the twist is really obvious, I'm not gonna pick up on it. And so, I was blown away by Shutter Island, which is a bummer now. Because watching it, you you have that in mind. Yeah, it's a movie that definitely does not have the same rewatchability of the twist right. and the whole idea of it being a thing anymore. It's still a very rewatchable movie for other reasons, mm-hmm. but not for that aspect, certainly. Right. Which, yeah, I, I know you guys want to do an episode on it at some point, but that is just a gorgeous movie. That's been one of my yeah. watch while you work, and it was very hard to work and watch that movie. But with Ghosts of War, it is just a really solid atmospheric horror movie. It had some solid scares, and it does go in an unexpected direction. So cool. that was pretty nice. Another movie that I was actually texting you guys about as I watched it is Matriarch. It is on Hulu. This movie, I will say, I didn't find particularly scary, and I just did air quotes for our listeners who can't see me in terms of jump scares or being unable to sleep at night. But this movie made me extremely and profoundly uncomfortable. So it's a movie about a husband and wife where the wife is heavily pregnant, you know, kind of final days who get stranded by the side of the road and are taken in by this seemingly like fairly wealthy family with two sons who are very overly religious and very socially awkward and kind of abrasive. Yeah, cool. Nothing wrong with that. Right. No problems at all. (laughs) What you kind of find out, I guess this is kind of a spoiler-ish, but it it happens really early in the movie. So skip ahead if you don't want this movie to be spoiled, is you find that the matriarch of this family takes uh, children from families and kills their parents, but they only really want sons. So they end up kind of doing the same to this couple very early on. And it's just the story of the couple as it goes through this movie. Now, the young husband actually is the creator of this movie and kind of the, the unsung hero 
hero. He's actually a really solid character. But there were a couple of things about it. You know, I was actually thinking about your invitation episode and how there's that idea of having like social pressures. Yeah. Where from the beginning, you're like, this is wrong. These people are weird. There's always that moment where the young wife is like, we shouldn't go with these people. This is really messed up. And the husband's like, it'll be fine. And then of course, it's not. There is that weird thing of like feeling like you have to say yes, even though something is clearly wrong. I think what made me so uncomfortable was the idea of, you know, the woman having things done to her where her body is violated and touched against her will while she's like screaming and crying and fighting. There were multiple scenes that made me so profoundly uncomfortable. You know, scenes where she's being physically held down while they're doing stuff to her that's very sexual and very invasive. It's pretty rough. And what I think is really interesting about this is I was Googling it afterward and a lot of the online critics were like, this movie's not really scary. And I think my reaction wasn't the intended reaction of the filmmakers because these scenes weren't like played up for horror. They were just part of the story. Sure. I was so shaken. And I mean, I even remember texting you guys and saying like, I hate this movie, which I didn't because I finished it and I kind of liked it by the end, but it was so disquieting and uncomfortable. But I will say uh, along that line, it is a movie that has a twist, but it's a twist that like from the minute you see this thing, much like the cigarette, from the minute you see this thing, you know exactly what it is and what's going on. So every other time this thing pops up and they try and be like, oh, what is that? Ooh, what is this? You're like, okay, that's, I know this. I know what you're doing. And so at the end when they reveal it and the music gets all dramatic, you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I knew 40 minutes ago. Yeah, like no one thought that wasn't the case. So So it is. It's telegraphed from the beginning. And the ending gets a bit rough, but it was a solid watch. I would maybe just go into it knowing that there are going to be potentially uncomfortable scenes, I guess, depending on, you know, what kind of pushes your buttons and messes with your kind of sensibilities. I don't know why that's the only word that's popping into my head, maybe from the uh, Masterpiece Theater intro. (laughs) So yeah, Matriarch was overall solid movie. Finally, the last thing I want to talk about and the most conflicted thing on my list is I played through Dark Pictures Anthology Little Hope. Yeah. And I will say, (laughs) you and I had a long conversation about this, Derek. Yes, we did. (laughs) You know what I'm about to say. I will say I really like these games. I liked Until Dawn. I liked Man of Medan. I like the concept of the game where you just play through the story. I think they're great and I want them to make more. With this game in particular, there were a ton of things I liked and one thing that I didn't like to the point where the game is ruined. And I will say when I'm going to get into spoilers. So I really love the story of this one. It switches back and forth between present days and the colonial witch trials, not quite Salem, but colonial. And that's a really interesting story. That's an interesting time period. There's a lot you can kind of do with that. The game did make me realize how much I love the concept of doppelgangers and not evil doppelgangers necessarily, but doppelgangers that are just you as you are with your traits, your characteristics, but in a different time period. Sure. And I love that. Like, I I love that as a story. It did have some cheap jump scares, including one that's really repeating to the point where it just gets mildly annoying, where something happens and you go, okay, something's about to pop up. There it is. All right, great. Thanks, guys. But I think what I liked overall is that it was a movie with a sense, a movie, a game with a sense of hope that things would be resolved if you could just write this wrong. Sure. And I have realized recently how much I like hopeful horror movies. Like you get so many that are so bleak 
that when you get horror movies where there's this sense that like, okay, if we fix this thing, it's going to be okay. And I liked that a lot. Okay. Now, ugh, the biggest issue with this game, and this is a huge spoiler, so fast forward however many seconds this takes, is that this game had one of the worst endings I've seen in a game in a long time. It's a Mass Effect ending. Mass Effect 3. It has a Mass Effect 3 ending where it ends up where all of this is in a character's head. Sure. Which is so (laughs) infuriating. It doesn't even make that much sense. It's uninspired. It invalidates everything you've done in the entire game. Like when I was playing up until the ending, I was so excited to finish so I could start over and get the full story and try and save everyone. I think one person died, so I did a pretty good job. But when it ends up being in someone's head, it's like, what's the point? None of the characters are real. Why should I try and save them? It didn't make sense even really, like the puzzle pieces didn't fit together. And it was almost just a really cheap ending. So I don't regret having played it, but I will probably never play it again. Because what's the point? You've played Until Dawn a handful of times, right? I think twice I played Until Dawn. Uh, That was actually one of the first games I ever played on my PS4. I really like Until Dawn. I just played Man of Medan once because I did a really bad job and everyone died and then I just never went back to it. But uh, with this one, I don't think I'm ever going to play it again. And... I don't think I regret playing it the first time, but when it ends like that, it's kind of like a slap in the face to your yeah. audience. You feel like your time's been wasted, too. Yeah, it's almost like a overthinking yeah, exactly. it. They overthought the ending, I think. Right. Overthinking it is right. I think feeling that pressure to be like, we have to make it twisty or something. Yeah. I mean, similar with Matriarch. Like, if Matriarch had taken out this one twist, the movie would have been better, and it didn't really need this whole storyline leading to the twist. You could just take it out and it'd be good. With Little Hope, it was like... Like you end for me pretty much everyone was alive there's hope the sun has risen everything feels good and then bam it's all in this guy's head and he's just crazy and you know that kind of stuff and it's like all right you know what was the point of all that time I spent and it, it just completely destroyed the emotional response and it, it really tarnished my opinion of the game well, and when we talked about it the way the ending sets up is kind of dumb too because it's like all in his head and then randomly a cop shows up arrests him and then depending on I guess how many <laughs> people you saved throughout the game like you can get better endings or if everyone dies you get like an ending that's really super bleak for no goddamn reason because I remember like after I was having that conversation I looked up the endings because I'm like I'm not gonna play this game Mm -hmm. it really is a kick in the nuts with how just the whole game is set up and then that's how it ends yeah which I remember you asking like maybe you got the bad ending and I was like if I got the bad ending I don't know what the good ending looks like because almost everyone survived the good ending is literally (laughs) everyone one lives but even the good ending was like a terrible ending so it's just like there's not even a point to go through it again and yeah and it was when you first mentioned that it was a mass effect ending my brain immediately went to oh so you have three choices one is clearly the correct choice the other two are bullshit choices but the game makes you feel like those are the correct ones <laughs> And when you said that it was all in somebody's head, I was like, wait, so one choice is it's in somebody's head. The other choice is it's in another person's head. And the other choice is it's in like the dog's head. Yes. So I'll be honest at this point, I guess saying something is a Mass Effect 3, whatever, like if it's a Mass Effect 3 dinner, it's just code for kind of bad. (laughs) It's just bad and disappointing. Um, Yeah, it's just soul crushing. That being said, can't wait for Legendary Edition. We'll play it immediately all the way through. (laughs) But uh, it's really bad. And it does have that Mass Effect 3 thing of remember all those choices that you made that really mattered? They don't. Apparently not. Which is... Yeah, it was really frustrating. No matter how hard they tried, Synthesis Ending 
is not the right ending. Sorry. <laughs> Correct. And maybe 12 people know what we're talking about, but that's okay. <laughs> no, I think a lot of people know because, I mean, Mass Effect was a big, is still is, I guess, a big franchise. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I feel like I've talked about Mass Effect a lot on this podcast as well. I remember talking about Garrus out of nowhere. So that's par for the course with me. It's It's going to come back to Mass Effect. So yeah, on that note, those were kind of my four things that I did want to recommend and or warn people against. Cool. Um, with that, Aaron, do you have it? Oh, wait, you don't have any this week. I don't. No, not at all. Way to be on top of things. So we'll just go straight to mine. I have two recommendations. First one is a game I recently played through, and I was kind of surprised at like how quickly it grabbed me and how I pretty much just played only it until I beat it for like several nights in a row. It's a game called The Persistence, made by Fire Sprite, a game developer. Back in 2018, it came out first as a VR title for PS4 VR. Then later on, they announced that they were releasing a patch called the complete edition in which they made it non-VR and this had been on my radar for a while because I just dug the whole aesthetic of the game and so finally they released it so actually I bought a physical because I I like physical media specifically with video games I bought a physical copy of the VR like disc so I downloaded the patch and then I just played it without VR and it works extremely well to the point where like I know it was well received as a VR game I can't imagine how good this is in VR and I can't imagine how fucking terrifying this game would be in VR. The Persistence is a sci-fi horror action video game. It is a roguelike game, but unlike a lot of roguelike games, it's a lot more accessible and less challenging, but it's still challenging enough that you will absolutely definitely die like a bunch of times. But that's the whole point of the game. Keep getting stronger, keep dying, getting more experience, learning the game. And it's not like a. this is the difference between this and Dark Souls. It's not a like get good type of game dying is part of the experience yes but unlike dark souls you're not like mem i mean you are memorizing enemy patterns a lot but that's not the point of it like dark souls uh the the point of it is to build up your character and to unlock new stuff and to have like better loadouts and things like that so you can continue completing the objectives so the story of the persistence is it's Somewhere in the future, just like nondescript future, you wake up aboard a colony ship called the Persistence, and you are in the shoes of a security officer named Zimri Elder, and you find out that there's another person in the ship with you who's one of the only survivors, and she wakes you up and basically clones you because you find out kind of just through the story, like, and this is what I liked about this game, is there wasn't really a lot of exposition dumps. It was more just, this is the technology in the world, deal with it. That's just how it is in this future and you find out that people can like have their engrams printed on like ai drives and then their bodies cloned and their consciousness is then put in that clone and that also introduces like how the game mechanic works because as zimri you play through cloned bodies and every time you die you are resurrected as another clone the cool part is as you're going through not only are you finding like new weapons and earning like dna type biocurrency that you use to literally like upgrade your clones So you have more health and stronger melee attacks and stronger shields. But then you also have regular credits that you can use to like purchase schematics and make
make your actual like suit stronger and have better abilities because there's also like abilities in this game think kind of like bioshock biotics from mass effect where you can teleport and hold up your shield longer and stuff like that and the other cool thing is because you are playing in cloned bodies every time you find a new dead crewmate you can save their dna the next time you're killed you can choose to resurrect in a different crewmate's body as zimri and each body has like its own special ability to it like this body harvests more dna this body is better at combat this body has more health now the actual horror about it is introduced because when you wake up you find out that the persistence is breaking apart it's like right on the event horizon of a black hole because of that like the ai and the persistence is fucked and so the body printers started just printing mutants just mutated versions of of like the cloned bodies and there's like various types of mutants throughout the game some of them are genuinely fucking terrifying because you can have like some that are like more stealth and like wait behind a corner for you to walk by and then lash out at you you have like big brute juggernaut clones um that will just like charge at you the absolute worst one was basically the female ghost that was called like a weeper or something like that your favorite yeah Yeah, you can hear her crying and then all of a sudden she can like banshee scream at you and like kill you that way so it's pretty fucking terrifying again i don't know how you could play through this in vr and like not throw your controller at your tv and then every time you die like the story is you're trying to go through the four or five docks of the ship to repair certain parts of the ship so you can like make it back to earth the ship is like part of this colony company and all that think like uh the company in alien sure they kind of have like their own agenda too you have the story objectives on the maps but that every time you die the map changes the way they justify it story-wise is there's some weird science that goes on with being that close to the black hole and the ship ai being like all over the fucking place that it causes literal like reality to kind of warp so every time you die like the ship layout literally changes because of reality warping as you progress through the game you meet harder enemies uh but you get more abilities throughout the levels there are these 3d printers and they'll like print you these fucking rad weapons like some of the weapons are like melee specific some are guns some are grenades my favorite one was a gravity grenade where it pulls all the enemies in the vicinity into like a singular black hole mini black hole and then like shoots them out when it explodes oh there's a teleporter like buzzsaw where you can literally like teleport yourself into a mutant and like explode them oh wow (laughs) so it's a pretty it's a pretty gory game as well but yeah it is one of the most underrated horror games from like this last gen i think if you weren't like paying specific attention to like horror video games as a subgenre I don't think you really would have heard about this and I also think that people just kind of dismiss it as VR only and not realizing that they came out with the non-VR patch whether you have VR or not I highly recommend checking this game out it is a great horror video game fantastic Lauren I think you would love this game so interestingly enough I'm really glad you brought this up because I just bought that game I've been on such a big switch kick lately and it's on switch yeah they ported it to switch right and so aaron you texted us about the buy two get one free deal the other day and i was looking for a third game and i was like this looks kind of cool click it's free and i haven't played it yet but it looks really good good. and and now i'm super excited that's the thing like with a vr game you think you go into it it's going to be a short game even if it's non-vr because it was first vr the mechanics are going to be really weird without using vr and they're really not there's only like very small learning curve with the non-vr mechanics there was some stuff they just couldn't get around like instead of pushing a button to pick something up or open up like a locker or a door you just kind of have to stare at it 
long enough and like have your cursor over it. And that took me about five minutes to like realize what was going on. Other than that, the, the controls okay. are great. The graphics are fantastic. And it's a long game. It took me at least like 10 hours or more to beat it. Yeah, if I remember, it was like 20 bucks yeah, when I got it. That's so a it's, steal. it's cheap. Yeah, that's a steal. Yeah. I would, I mean, I would have gladly paid full price for this game. That's how impressed I was with it. So yeah, check it out. The Persistence. Good game. Another game I wanted to bring up, and this is one that I am bringing up because of the movie we're covering this week. Not because I played it recently. It's actually been probably a couple of years since I last played it. I'm bringing it up because Jennifer Carpenter, the actress who's in the movie we're discussing this week, plays one of the main characters, did the voice work, and maybe did the motion capture for it. I'm not 100% sure on that. And that game is The Evil Within, the first Evil Within. The Evil Within was made by Shinji Mikami, who was the designer, director, and producer for the original Resident Evil. Like he is like kind of treated as one of those like survival horror gurus and grandfathers of the entire genre. I think he left Capcom to do his own game design, and this was like one of his first projects. It's pretty solid. It's up there with some of the better Resident Evil games. I wouldn't say it's amazing, but the horror is top notch. The story is kind of batshit but interesting enough i guess you start off as this detective named sebastian you are joined with your partner joseph and junior detective julie kidman and julie kidman is actually played by jennifer carpenter you get called to this place called beacon mental hospital because like there's apparently this scene of a mass murder there on the way like shit goes bananas like reality gets distorted and they all find themselves like in this crazy like silent hill ass type world where like all kinds of shit is trying to kill them and I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to like get too far into the story to give stuff away but like I feel like there's like three or four different twists that they try and throw at you in this game but the horror is pretty top notch it's very gory there was actually three DLCs for it and the first two DLCs were like their own campaign in which you actually played as Julie so you get to play as Jennifer Carpenter's character and then the third DLC you actually got to play I think as one of the monsters from the game it's like more of like a mini game type or arcade game like if you have any idea of like horror video games you've probably heard a shit ton about the evil within actually i did want to ask did have either of you played the evil within have not yet i have both one and two just haven't gotten around to playing either yet i have not i gotten it on like a ps4 super sale i just wasn't quite in the mood for it when i sat down to play it like i started it and got three minutes in and then was like ah, i don't really feel like this as much as i thought i did and just haven't picked it up since but i do have it and i've been meaning to try it it really is like a mashup of Resident Evil 4 and like Silent Hill where it kind of fails is sometimes it almost tries a little too hard to like wear the stuff that it's riffing on. Mm. It doesn't try and rip anything off, but also trying to like set itself apart from those. But then at the same time, like you're in a distorted world, you're fighting like these nightmarish creatures. Uh, the basic enemies basically just act like the infected from Resident Evil 4. So there is still a lot of that crossover. But yeah, some of the enemies are almost just like, what if Silent Hill was really badass and even more grimdark? But it's still a great game like it's very well designed the story goes almost a little too long if there's another like minor gripe i have for it but it's solid it's definitely a game every horror fan who enjoys gaming should play like even if it's not like one of your favorites it's definitely at least worth checking out because shinji himself is like a video game director legend when it comes to survival horror like resident evil wouldn't be where it is today without him and that's all i got y'all 
So, Aaron, I'll let you uh, take it away to introduce the movie we're going to do this week. Cool. Well, we are going to be discussing a 2005 courtroom exorcism drama. I think, Lauren, you had described it as Law and Order, but with demons. (laughs) Right. I was going to just show my hand really quickly by saying that I love this movie because it does combine two of my favorite things, which is horror movies, and courtroom dramas. (laughs) And in that respect, it is definitely a unique movie amongst the horror genre. Immediately, my head kind of goes to it's The Exorcist meets Rashomon. It's kind of the same exact thing where you're hearing the same story, but you're getting it from different people's perspective through flashbacks in a courtroom setting, but, you know, with exorcism. So, yeah, we are going to be discussing this movie. uh, Again, 2005, directed by Scott Derrickson. Do you understand how long they can put you away for this? I want people to hear what only I can tell. And what is that? What really happened to Emily and why. So she believed that her actual possession began that night at the hospital? I think she did. Emily had epilepsy. Father Moore's beliefs are based on superstition. Did Father Moore ask you to give her any medical help? I couldn't help her. Why couldn't you help her? Because there are no injections against the devil. Emily? Hey, can you hear me? exist whether you believe in them or not just be careful Aaron. there are forces surrounding this trial Emily can you hear me let you get started this was kind of your pick what you think cool so again i love this movie uh, i think i first saw it on tnt forever ago <laughs> watched it one afternoon yeah this was on fucking tnt really dude there's nothing iffy in this movie like there are yeah. jump scares right. there's demon stuff but there is no sex there is no gore yeah there is not really any language in this movie that's serious like this is a cable staple movie of the last decade for show american cable so fucking weird what man like it really is just no sex whatsoever <laughs> but violence and like shit like this yeah whatever totally fine so one thing i was really thinking when i watched this and i think part of it is because we recently had a miniature conversation in our little group chat when i watched i guess the is a fifth sneak recommendation. I watched I Trap the Devil on Hulu and it made me think about how I don't find the is it demons or are they just mentally ill storyline compelling in most cases where either way kind of getting back to what we were saying about twists it feels like it's disappointing. So if you find out it really was supernatural in the end you're like yeah I knew it was supernatural of course it is it's a horror movie blah but if you find out oh this person's really just mentally ill much like with Dark Pictures Anthology Little Hope it's really disappointing 
painting. Sure. And you're like, well, then what's the point of anything? You know, I Trapped the Devil didn't do that great of a job. I think this movie is one of the, I'm tempted to say best, but I don't have as many horror movies under my belt as you guys do. One of the better examples of this type of story. And I think it's because it is this courtroom drama, it lends itself so well to, you have the prosecution saying like, no, she is sick. It is not a demon. Demons don't exist. You know, Sarina proven a court of law that demons exist. That's insane. And then you have actually trying to prove with evidence and experts and testimony that yes, it is actually demons while a whole bunch of supernatural stuff is going on. So that was one thing I was really thinking watching this is that this is such a good example and the story framing lends itself so well to presenting that storyline in a really strong way. Yeah. So one thing just to kind of start off to that entire point. Scott Derrickson is kind of an interesting dude as far as a director goes. A, he is open about his faith. He is a, like, true believer TM. Oh, really? I didn't know that. He would probably still claim to be Christian if he needed to put a label on it, but he is, from everything that I have heard of him in the last few years, he is just more, in general, like, in touch with his spirituality. Hmm. So he's kind of like what I strive to be, but maybe not fully get to myself. To a degree, yeah. And I mean, knowing you, I'm, I'm saying that with no derision, obviously. He started off growing up, he was in a pretty non-religious household, kind of a sketch neighborhood. Parents were in kind of a sketch situation a little bit. So he grew up constantly kind of a little bit scared of just life in general around him. And he kind of found a sense of community and safety in like church youth groups as mm-hmm. he got a little bit older. And in high school, he kind of got involved with really fundy, hardcore Christian groups. And when he went to college, specifically to like study literature and philosophy and theology, that's where he started really questioning everything and really looking at the dogmatic side of religion that he was involved in. So he very much has a universal spirituality sense to him, which kind of bleeds over into this movie a little bit, bleeds over into some of his other movies, which is one of the reasons why he was a good choice to direct Doctor Strange, ultimately, because it's kind of the same thing. It's looking at a universality of spiritualism. So he is coming into this movie as a true believer TM. And what helped him was his writing partner, Paul Harris Boardman. In an interview that I've heard with Scott Derrickson, he talked about how he likes always working with a writing partner. He doesn't feel like he is a strong enough writer, so he always likes working with a writing partner to kind of pass things through and have somebody to balance them out. He specifically had worked with Boardman before, but wanted to work with him on this project because he is a skeptic. He is a complete, absolute, I don't believe any of this. And so having the two of them with kind of slightly opposed ideologies looking at this story, that's kind of the perfect way to write a script like this, where you're having to balance in this type of courtroom case, how do you really hash out like the facts of the case versus the like, what if we don't really know, you know, the answer to these things kind of questions. So that's definitely interesting to me. And I enjoy him as a director because I think he's willing to take interesting experimental, like, let's just see if this works. Like the entire notion of specifically working with a writer on this project who is diametrically opposed to you in terms Mm -hmm. of like philosophy and religion and everything is interesting. If only more people could be open to working with others who they don't see eye to eye with on certain ideologies. That would would be nice, right? Exactly. (laughs) 
he also didn't give the script to all the cast extras who played the jurors in this movie. So their reactions are pretty genuine on camera. They didn't know like what the outcome of this that's trial was going to be. Great. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And afterward, they asked the jurors, how would y'all come down on this case? And they were split right down the middle. So that's a pretty good indicator that the movie's tracking in the right direction. And I like that this movie doesn't explicitly come down on one thing or the other. Like me personally, as a skeptic, it's not super proselytizing. It's not like, see, the power of good and evil has been there this entire time a hundred thousand percent, right? I'm glad you brought that up because for me, it kind of did feel like pretty definite that it was supernatural shit was going on. And one of the things I was actually going to ask you specifically, Aaron, because I know you're much more of a skeptic, not much more, but you are a skeptic compared to where I'm at. Do you think the movie still gives enough credence to the possibility that all of this could be just severe mental illness and uh, mental anguish all like Mm -hmm. towering down like dominoes or toppling down like dominoes? Lauren, what are your thoughts on that? So actually, I am so glad this came up because I was thinking about it earlier. And I also think the movie does come down on this is supernatural. This is all real. But I think the movie definitely gives enough credence to the she is just really ill. And I think that is another one of the strengths of having a courtroom drama where someone is literally able to be like, this is a doctor. And he thinks this is exactly what's going on. And here's her symptoms. And here's all the things. And what I really loved, I know we're going to get to how amazing Jennifer Carpenter is and her like body movements and her acting in this movie the moments where they would show her being physically held down in bed and it seemed like it was a demon and it was very scary and then while a doctor was saying here's the symptoms of you know psychotic epilepsy or psychotic epileptic whatever they end up calling her disorder they kind of land on it shows her just looking like she's having a seizure and that I think they do a good job of trying to add that ambiguity of trying to lend enough credence to the idea by showing like both back flashes yeah yes but i do think ultimately that the movie does come down on this was all real like none of these people hallucinated and i think part of that too is that like tom wilkinson is seeing things wait is it tom wilkinson that plays the priest yes correct okay good i just wanted to check before i (laughs) just said the name of a random character actor but yeah like the way that he's kind of seeing things the way that laura linney is seeing things that are just enough to where it's like okay that can't be the ac kicking on yeah so like the the stuff in her apartment doors opening and slamming by themselves her watch just stopping at three and then the tape recorder turning itself on come on we we, we know what what kind of movie you are but that's just me like Aaron it's interesting kind of with our dynamic when it comes to I guess spirituality which we we don't really often talk about on our show we talked about this a little bit like with a dark song I think and maybe one or two other movies we've covered comes up on episodes like this where we're talking about religious stuff specifically yeah yeah but like where you're skeptic atheist i'm more what i kind of like to call a hopeful agnostic at this point in my life like a universal spiritual where for our listeners who haven't gone back and listened to those episodes i was raised catholic as i got older i actually became less religious i started off pretty religious as a kid as i became a teenager i started not caring to just straight up like actively like disliking the church and i left the catholic church in my mind at least 
probably when I was like 17, 18, right around when a lot of the scandals were first coming out about it and like all the abuse and, and everything else. I probably hit peak agnosticism, maybe even atheism, end of high school into college. And then somewhere like towards the end of college, um, ironically enough, when I was taking more science and health related classes for nursing school, but somewhere at the end of college and, and into adulthood, I kind of reopened my openness, I guess, for lack of better terms, to spirituality. But to the point where like, I can't 100% accept like atheistic, complete skeptical thought, but at the same time, I still struggle with like my own personal beliefs and trying to like believe stuff that is unexplainable. The whole idea of faith is having faith in something that can't be proven. And that's very tough for me to reconcile in my own brain um, because I am very much a person who uh, is all about science and using logic and knowledge, real human knowledge to solve problems. With all that said, you know, no knock against any of our listeners who are religious. I'm a firm believer that whatever your belief or lack thereof is, you know, that's perfect. That's great. Whatever you need to do to get through this crazy life, you know, as long as it's not causing violence or you're being a zealot who's trying to push your beliefs on everyone else and that also goes even for skeptics because like I, I dislike militant skeptics almost as much as I dislike fanatics pushing the religion but with all that said like we respect everyone's beliefs obviously but I don't know if this has anything to do like my background and like my openness towards the unexplainable the supernatural or at least my openness compared to Aaron because my openness isn't very open either but maybe that's why this movie was more effective from the supernatural route and hey guess what thanks guys this movie scared the living fucking shit out of me this <laughs> might have been the scariest movie we've done since the autopsy of Jane Doe holy shit I had mild nightmares thanks appreciate it I did love seeing a lot of your messages where it was just stuff like fuck y'all <laughs> yeah. holy shit yeah. fuck this like that that was just all well and aaron so listeners off mic aaron was just like you're just personal spirituality like you're no longer religious it won't scare you that bad uh yeah bullshit like so all right it's americana possession movie and like i say americana possession movie because we've done foreign possession movies and americana possession movie is kind of what you expect it to be like body distortion face distortions like seeing demonic imagery you know typical like exorcist shit right. but yeah lauren what you know you i don't want you to put you on the spot and trying to like give away your own personal beliefs what was effective in that regard Actually, I was going to say that with this movie, I don't remember it being scary. When I was watching it, I was like, Derek said this is so scary. Have I ever found this movie scary? And I yeah. think the first time I watched it, I did. But ever since then, I really haven't. That being said, like, I could see why other people do but i think it's because the story gets so in-depth and you're really like kind of digging into it i think that one thing that really helps me not be as scared about this story and i was curious what you all thought of this is the fact that from the minute the movie opens you know that by the end of this emily rose is dead yeah you know that whatever happens in the rest of this movie she dies and i think there is some weird kind of comfort to that where you're just sort of figuring out what happens oh yeah it's like putting together the puzzle Right. Yeah, there's no unknown plot that you're faced with. You don't necessarily right. know how the case is going to end up, but you know that, like, whatever happened 
is done. It's over. Exactly. You're not like, oh, is it going to be, are they going to make it? Who's going to live? That kind of stuff. Um, I do think it was the first movie that I can remember freaking me out about 3 a.m., which <laughs> that feels like it's such a trope now. But was that in movies before this? Was this like the movie that kind of started that? Has that been a thing? Do you guys know? I can't think of another movie that has specifically done the 3 a.m. thing, but I know that that is like part of folklore. Oh, okay. I want to say even like in The Sentinel, there was a scene where she like woke up and it was like, 2.20 something in the morning yeah. and like the witching hours 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. or something like that. See, my brothers and I always took the calculator approach. You know how you like type in like 58008 and it just makes like boobs, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We would always joke about 11.34 being like the evil time, because if you flip 11.34 upside down, it spells hell. Well done. Oh. I think that is something that has stuck with me with this movie, is that even though now, maybe because I did see it on TNT in an afternoon, which it's... <laughs> with commercials. Right, where it's like in between, they're talking about like March Madness and basketball and stuff. I do remember it scaring me the first time, but ever since it hasn't. However, I will say that if I wake up in the middle of the night and I look at the clock and it's 3 a.m., I do have this moment of, oh, oh no, like it's <laughs> 3 a.m. And I know there was a time in high school when I would wake up at 3 a.m. and I like wouldn't go back to sleep. I would be like, I need to stay up. I need to turn on some lights. Like it's gotta be safe. So yeah. it has affected me kind of in that way. I definitely had the same reaction that you did when we rewatched it. None of the horror stuff scared me. None of that got to me. You know, all of the stuff where she's running around on campus and she's freaking out and she's seeing like people's faces turn into demons and all of that, that was borderline laughable. Oh, you fucking psychopath. I was and have been since I saw this movie because I remember when this came out. I saw it the year that it came out because all I heard was, oh my God, this girl Jennifer Carpenter's amazing and her possession performance is the best you'll ever see, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You know, so I kind of went into the movie even then knowing like there is a performance at the center of this movie. There is all the courtroom stuff around this movie. None of the like flashbacks were that scary to me at all because I was not really focused on the supernatural stuff. I'm always paying attention to Carpenter and what she's doing. I'm always paying attention to the scene and the atmosphere, the directing side of it, right. because none of the supernatural stuff bothers me. Right. The scene that I honestly find the most affecting as far as spiritual stuff goes is the scene where she wanders out into the front yard in the misty morning. And there's nothing mm -hmm. really horrific that happens in that scene, but it is just an ethereal dreamlike state it's very eerie that's very affecting yeah it's very eerie it's very much the backdrop of like what the poster is with her wandering in the fog and the tree in the background well on that note i try not to bring up other podcasts on our podcast <laughs> i'm the one who does that yeah i i, I try <laughs> let's focus on our show but i was listening to an interview with scott derrickson on the uh, shockwaves podcast from you know two three years ago when that show was still going on and he was talking about how he had to fight to keep that scene in the movie and oh, how wow. he had to fight for the idea of we have to tell this girl's story we have to give her rationalization of i am going to suffer so that i inspire others that entire thing he had to kind of fight to keep in they were just kind of like oh you've got an agenda because you're a believer and blah 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 and like some of the producers kind of gave him shit about it because they thought it was kind of hokey and he was like at the end of the day 
that fucking scene that they wanted to cut is the poster. So that shows how effective that yeah, scene actually is. It's probably, it's arguably yeah. the most iconic. For me, this movie came out in 2005. I remember clearly seeing the advertisements for it all the time on TV and everything. And it, this was a weird time because this was like, 2005 wasn't the best year. And I don't, I, I think this came out like either shortly after or during like Hurricane Katrina hitting Aaron. I don't know. I, I don't know. Was it September? when this movie dropped i'm not sure like what time of the year i'd have to go back and look it up but it, it would have been around then yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think hurricane katrina had just devastated the southeast and you know i grew up in new orleans and so like we were out of new orleans and like didn't know where we were gonna go for a little while didn't know if we had lost all our shit this was kind of a weird time in my life and a, maybe even a dark time where like i actually started turning away from horror um i brought it up a couple times on our show but this was that era of what i kind of call like trash with a coat of paint on it American horror where like either it was like remakes of foreign horror or old horror. I was gonna say them's fighting words Derek. Yeah I I just I do not like a lot of early to mid 2000s horror because like I saw a lot of it in theaters and a lot of it was trash to me. Lauren is furiously shaking her head right now. My face is as red as my headset. I, I saw the uh, advertisements for Exorcism of Emily Rose and that the commercial for it only shows like really that scene where she's like running around campus seeing all that shit. So like I just assumed it's like, oh, here we go. This is like another kind of just relies only on jump scares type movie. And I dismissed it. And then it wasn't until later on, like when I like reconnected with my friends and stuff, they're like, holy shit, Emily Rose was intense, but not what I expected. And like, that's why I'd always heard about this movie. I was like, huh, okay. And like at the time it was, kind of mixed review received at least like among the people I, I spoke with so I kind of just dismissed it as like well if it's an average horror movie like it's not something I'm going to go out of my way. It wasn't until later on years later within the last couple of years especially when we were putting our podcast together that like no this is like kind of a gem of a horror movie and y'all are right this movie kind of won me over in the process of watching it because I was not on board at first because the first 10 minutes did feel weird it had like camera filter on where it was causing everything to be like like a tone of gray the doctor walking up to the house and he sees like oh no there's the hornets there and there's this dead animal over here and the whole mood is somber and it's just like oh come on like this is but then like by the end of the movie i'm like i'm into this same reasons like lauren that you like this is you know the courtroom drama again i call this americana possession and exorcism because it is very much like it definitely shows its influence from the exorcist on and it's not hiding that and jennifer carpenter's performance is on another fucking planet good in terms of just even physical acting right this is like some of the scariest and most impressive american possession style horror i've seen since the exorcist i don't know if it's the best or the scariest but it's fucking impressive yeah carpenter actually spent hours in front of mirrors trying to figure out the most effective ways of contorting her body that whole silent scream thing that she does is kind of what won her the part apparently like she knocked out her holy fuck yeah audition to the point where like a lot of the special effects that they had planned and they even made like these body dummies that they were going to be able to contort in all these weird ways like she was so good at what she was doing that they just dropped all that and let her do the performance oh wow it's really interesting that you said that about tone because this 
this is an incredibly somber and very, very serious horror movie. Like there's not yeah. really laughs in it. There's a lot of gravity to the story. You know, we can talk about Jennifer Carpenter and she absolutely deserves to be talked about, but it's the performances overall that make this movie. Every single role is played by like a heavy hitter who shows up and does an amazing job. Every character is done well and is done by like someone big. Yeah, the four, I mean, the four MVPs, uh, Laura Linney, Tom Wilkinson, Campbell Scott, and Jennifer Carpenter, who we've talked about so mm-hmm. far, like, I mean, they really go for it in this movie. So for you horror newbies out there, if possession and demonic horror and jump scares is what scares you, congratulations. This movie is fucking scary. It was exactly the types of buttons uh, that get me. But the thing is that this movie is a lot less jump scare heavy than I anticipated it being. I thought it was going to be like throughout the whole fucking movie. And really, it's more just a couple intense flashback scenes. But those flashback scenes, again, going back to Carpenter's performance, those flashback scenes are so goddamn damn impressive and haunting they count even when the second half of the movie is much more of like the court procedural and maybe less scary and jump scares and supernatural Aaron, I know you laughed about it, but like really that whole scene where she runs across campus hallucinating all those demonic faces, that scared the living hell out of me. (laughs) I know I'm in the middle of like my spiel of like, should newbies watch this or not? But minor spoiler, giving away a scene. um, So if you don't want to hear it, just skip ahead a little bit. That scene where that guy who like she became friends with, who's comforting her through this, wakes up and sees her body on the floor contorted in this ungodly ways, just staring at him. And like has an open mouth. Yeah. That scene fucking terrified me. And when he goes up to her and she grabs him and screams, that is one of the scariest jump scares. And I know I just said that, that like Under the Shadow had one of the scariest jump scares. This made Under the Shadow's jump scare look like a bunch of bullshit because this jump scare got me so bad that I almost threw my fucking headphones off and was like, I almost tapped out on this movie. Like I haven't almost tapped out on a movie since Autopsy of Jane Doe. And that almost got me to walk away and just pretend like I had watched the rest of it but that's just me like so if supernatural horror and possession horror and, and like typical like exorcist style body contortions face contortions seeing demonic faces if that stuff doesn't get you go watch this movie it's definitely worth a watch or even a rewatch if you haven't seen it in a while however if this does get you the first half is real fucking intense but if you can get through the first half you're kind of smooth sailing although i did have mild nightmares after this so you know you've been warned right see i think one thing that i really really love about this movie and that among a lot of things that distinguishes it from other horror movies, um, which I want to get to, I want to talk about college at some point. I think that what this movie keeps in mind throughout all of the writing, throughout all of these really strong performances from all of the cast, it gets at this idea that underneath all of these jump scares and trying to get a reaction out of you, it gets at the idea that this was a very deeply sad thing that happened. A young woman is dead. And like, no matter what happens, no matter if we resolve whether it's supernatural or whether it was medical, you know, a person has died behind all of this and especially when they do drive home this is based on true events they do have the sort of epilogues at the very end it does keep in mind that like this is a very sad human event and human beings have been deeply affected by it and i think that's one thing i really love about this movie that's a really good point because it's a random tragedy too right like she's at the peak of her life this young woman who is loved by everyone who seems to meet her finally is achieving her dream going to college so she can I, i think it's what to become a school teacher even if it is demons like even if that was really the case the demons choosing to possess her and 
fuck with her and then kill her was random even if there is some kind of divine purpose because like later on in the movie it's hinted that like the virgin mary basically told her like if you decide to continue to suffer like your story will inspire others but even then like why me and but like that's the 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 thing about emily rose as a character is like even till the end if all this happens the way that she thinks it happened and father moore thinks it happened even till the end she was just like you know i i'm okay with that let me like go ahead and do this and that's even more tragic that she has that like kind of martyrdom which martyrdom is very common amongst like christianity especially catholics so we brought up the four like heavy hitters right and something i wanted to circle back around to actually before we kind of get more into the cast and other themes that this movie tackles aaron i know you probably know this but like what are some other credits for Scott Derrickson? Because I know, like, we had touched on, like, him having an interesting career, but, like, he didn't really get into, like, what other works he's done because he's been in horror quite a lot. Yeah, so Derrickson, like I mentioned earlier, he went to college for philosophy and literature and theology. Like, that's what he has his degree in. And he kind of was always interested in theater and photography and art and writing. And he kind of discovered that film was just the culmination of all those things put together so that's what he pursued he started off getting a gig writing hellraiser 5 and directing that so he did the first, <laughs> what yeah so he did the first direct to video hellraiser movie inferno he went on to do the remake of the day the earth stood still after this movie that we're talking about that movie's one that got a lot of studio interference and he got a bad taste in his mouth with studio stuff what's crazy is Emily Rose that we're talking about, this movie had a $19 million budget. It made $144 million worldwide. But thanks to, like, shady accounting, the studio claims that this movie, like, never turned a profit. What? It happens all the time. That's the kind of Hollywood bullshit that happens all the time, right? There's no way that this movie was not profitable. They did not spend that much money on advertising and marketing and everything else. It's just money disappears. And kind of the same thing happened with The Day the Earth Stood Still. So, he then jumps on the Blumhouse ship and does Sinister. Oh, shit. I forgot he's the guy who directed Sinister. And didn't he write it as well? Yeah, he wrote and directed Sinister. He also wrote and produced the follow-up movie, although he did not direct it. Interesting. He wrote a movie called Devil's Knot, which is also a courtroom drama about the West Memphis Three. I've seen that, yeah, with Colin Firth. Yeah, and Adam Egoyan directed that one. I'm very interested to watch it now. And then his probably biggest thing at this point is he wrote and directed Doctor Strange for Marvel a couple years ago. He was on track to do Doctor Strange 2 and dropped out due to creative differences, which he hasn't spoken about it a ton. I have a feeling that he wanted to make the first movie way more horror focused. And they were even saying for the longest time, like, Doctor Strange is going to be the Marvel entry into the horror realm. And it really wasn't. And I have a feeling that he was really pushing hard to do a lot more horror in Doctor Strange 2. And clearly now, like we see with WandaVision and the things that we're hearing about Spider-Man and some of the other upcoming stuff, and the tag for Doctor Strange 2 being in the multiverse of madness, it seems like they are definitely, like, getting away from the horror angle. So I have a feeling that's where 
where the creative differences lie. Well, are they, though? Because aren't they now having Sam Raimi direct? They are having Sam Raimi direct it, but I mean, at the same time, just because he did the Evil Dead movies and Drag Me to Hell and stuff like that, I mean, he also did Spider-Man 1 through 3. Right. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't think it's going to be as horror-centric as probably what Derrickson wanted. That is my personal feeling, just kind of keeping up with the Marvel shit if we're going to go off on that tangent. But he's got a lot of stuff coming up. Like, he has got Bermuda with Chris Evans. He's signed on to do the Labyrinth sequel, finally. Oh, well, something I did also look up, too, was that uh, he has his one that's coming up right now is called The Black Phone. Yeah. Which is based off of a story by Joe Hill, yeah. Stephen King's son, and it's going to be a horror movie. And that one, apparently, so far the cast for that is Jeremy Davies and Ethan Hawke. Yeah. And I know he's worked with Ethan Hawke on Sinister. Also, as another horror credit, didn't he do something else? Like, wasn't it Deliver Us from Evil or something like that? Yeah, that came out before Doctor Strange, and it was kind of a big flop all around. But that was another one where, like, he had a hard time with the studio in a lot of different yeah. ways on that one. I could say that because yeah. I will say I do like that movie. I'm I'm a fan. I still have yet to check it out. I need to watch that one, but I'm I'm very interested about some of the like less horror focused stuff that he wrote, like Land of Plenty and Devil's Knot. So I'm definitely gonna check those out soon. But what I think is interesting again is that again he has always been very open about his faith and spirituality. And his aim when making this movie was he wanted to make it with enough ambiguity that audiences would at least have to question what they kind of know to be the truth. Um, regardless of what they bring into the movie, at least kind of have to consider the alternative afterward. You know, so the fact that, like, he didn't go in with a hard agenda, like, for one way or the other, and specifically, like, his agenda was to bring ambiguity. I find that to be interesting. But the story specifically is based on a real-life story about a girl named Annalise Michelle, and before we get into that whole story, Derrickson actually found out about the only real book in print that was about that story and it was called The Exorcism of Annalise Michelle by this anthropologist named Felicitas Goodman. It's been out of print since the 70s and the only fucking copy that he could find and track down was at the LA Municipal Library and it was on reserve so you couldn't check it out so he like literally got a fucking roll of change and went down there and just photocopied the entire book <laughs> so that he could kind of you know take that home and study and write the script off of it so it's sorry Derek what were you about to say oh well, I was gonna say kind of going back to, like to what kind of energy and the type of film he wanted to make where like he wanted to be a little bit more ambiguous with not necessarily swaying one way or the other again I think both Lauren and I think this works more as a the supernatural is we is real but he does leave enough of the skeptical side of things in there to keep that ambiguity to the point where I think almost like more than any of the other characters the two lawyers that are going head to head in this movie Ethan Thomas who's played by Campbell Scott and Aaron Bone who, who's played by Laura Linney I think those two characters are almost like his like maybe his own thought process like kind of like fighting sure. each yeah. other like butting heads because um, I feel like he injects his own energy into both those characters more than anyone else granted I think Campbell Scott is kind of sometimes maybe played a little bit as like being a douchebag in this movie but like you know at the same time I think his arguments are are profound enough that like you can't deny them which is funny you say that too because derrickson has said that the character he most sees himself in in this movie 
is the Campbell Scott character. That he is oh, interesting. a man of faith who is still going to, like, question the process, yeah. That's fucking funny because I think to varying degrees, both you and I are the Campbell Scott character. Um, I don't know about yeah. you, Lauren, but, like, you're, like, less of the religious, but you're more on board with the truth and, like, the actual explanation. Same with me, even if I am a little bit more open to spirituality. But I think both of us are, like, Ethan Thomas in this movie. But, Lauren, are, how do you feel about that? Like, do you relate to anybody? Or I mean, as I said at the cold open of this episode, I'm Laura Linney. <laughs> no, actually, I just wanted to say that joke. I really don't know. Honestly, this is a terrible answer to this question. I just don't think about it much. Like, I'm just usually thinking about sure, other yeah, things. Yeah. So I mean, that's fine. I don't like try to inject myself in many movies, right. but this was one that I at least like injected myself into the Ethan Thomas character. Yeah, if you're asking me, now that I think about it, I definitely fall more in line with Shore Agadashlu's character of the anthropologist in the movie. Oh yeah. I am definitely a skeptic. I am definitely non-religious, but I definitely believe in the fact that there is is a universal spirituality throughout all of mankind and that it's not necessarily like a spiritual force that is a thing as much as just it is a cultural phenomenon like we can't deny the fact that religion is a worldwide phenomenon across all people time culture etc like i believe in it as a cultural thing not necessarily as a like true indicator that there is something else out there simply because people all over the world believe it to be if that makes sense right there is kind of a world of difference between sort of like musing about this on your own and then being in a situation where like things are happening where you can't explain sure and so yeah, I, yeah. I do think that is where it's kind of hard for me to come down on seeing my viewpoint reflected in a the character there is just kind of a difference there between like i've started seeing things there's how you feel and there's what you would do in the situation exactly and so there is kind of a difference of would my viewpoint change if things started happening Ugh, i hope they don't yeah. i'd rather that not happen but you know <laughs> it's, it's it's a hard question to answer yeah speaking of which since you brought her up uh, the scene with the anthropologist uh, i believe her character name is dr adani that is a scene where ethan thomas does kind of show his ass a little bit of being like <laughs> almost too skeptical to the point where he's being insulting by like insulting her credentials like oh you know you studied native americans smoking peyote like man you expanded your mind man like he does kind of have that attitude sometimes but i think that like he does get smacked down enough by the judge you know you you can be all about skepticism and explanations but like you can't do it to the detriment of tearing down others basically right. and that scene was like a little bit of him going too far maybe but again i'm i'm glad that's all that is in there at the end of the day this also has all the trappings of a good courtroom drama of like people losing their temper like objection and like both of you come to my stand so i can talk to you like all those tropes that you like to see in courtroom dramas and law and order fucking happen in this movie and they happen well earned i would say right they, yeah. they don't feel hokey on that note this movie was influenced a lot by the verdict and anatomy of a murder as far as like reference points for like the courtroom mechanics and the storytelling within a courtroom and interestingly enough i watched this with my wife who is a lawyer um not necessarily like this type of trial lawyer but she knows procedure and she said it's surprisingly accurate so there's a few things like you know you can't just call up surprise witnesses like if you have right. witnesses they have to be disclosed ahead of time you can't just pull evidence out of your ass and be like yeah cool we just have this evidence all of a sudden that we're going to enter and like it doesn't work like that but otherwise everything's pretty accurate if there's one small gripe i have with this movie which 
to its credit, this is really one of the only ones I can think of. It's everything with Dr. Cartwright. <laughs> yeah. All of that feels like the very tropey, like, stereotypical possession modern horror shit of just him like, I'm a haunted man and I'm seeing demons. Yeah. There's dark forces at work. And then, right. like, him just getting killed right in front of her by the fucking car. Like, which if that actually happened, th- I'm sorry, but I feel like that would pause the fucking proceedings for, like, a good month or two. That would cause so much media attention if like something like that had happened in front of one of the star lawyers are you kidding me but like him being like seeing like there's something behind you and packing up just as he gets hit that was a scene where i unironically like lost my shit and started laughing because it caused (laughs) me to roll my eyes this is more of the tropey horror i was hoping was not in this movie which thankfully that's all the tropey horror really that's in this movie except you know maybe the possession stuff maybe gets a little bombastic but otherwise it's effective uh as someone who's not even close to being an expert but does watch a lot of daytime tnt law and order it was interesting (laughs) to me that ethan thomas was like hang on you can't introduce this we weren't informed this stuff and then at the very end when tom wilkinson goes up and he has the letter from emily laura linney hands it to him and then he sits up there and just unfolds this letter and is like i have this letter straight from emily and i'm gonna read it and it like clinches the emotional core of the case ethan thomas says nothing my little red flag it's such a nitpicky point but i was like would he not be like hang on excuse me you just were handed a letter from this lawyer saying it's from the dead girl. I thought the same thing, right? And I don't remember if it's like done as a sidebar line because they make such a point of like registering stuff into evidence during the court case of like when they introduce something and especially the stuff with Dr. Carwright. There's a moment where Laura Linney does say like, and this whatever, which was in the list of evidence that, you know, you were given this morning. Like, yeah, there's a moment or two where she does pull that at the last minute that kind of sort of justifies it. That's not even what she does with the, because that was a different piece of, But with that letter specifically, it is just... I had this, yeah. I took it as, like, it was one of the pieces of evidence that was immediately registered, like, before the case even began, which is why, like, I think there was no reaction. Because they made such a big deal of registered evidence about the tape recording, which, by the way, that's a whole other element of horror, of, like, the recording of, like, The Exorcist. And, like, you hear a part of that recording right in the opening credits, which was like, oh, okay, this is the type of movie we're getting into. But, yeah, I just took that as, like, it had been in registered as evidence, like, before the court case even began but you know the fact that i had to like make that conclusion in my head that might be a knock against the movie itself right a tiny tiny knock but yeah actually kicking back to the idea of not having tropes for some reason with this watch through i focused on the portrayal of college and what i love about this movie is it doesn't have any of the usual horror movie tropes with college like usually when it's about someone in college there's going to be a party scene usually if it's like a female protagonist she's going to have a friend who's like you need to get with cute boy from cw show because he thinks you're cute too and you need to lighten up there would be my favorite of the college tropes she has no friends she's a very much loader in this movie right (laughs) sorry keep going (laughs) how dare you she has that guy that is like dark and mysterious yeah jason poor jason actually am i he's been traumatized for life jason my notes literally say if tom wilkinson told me anything i'd believe it and then right under that it says poor jason that's all jason (laughs) gets in my notes but uh i also really like that it doesn't have my most gets under my skin college trope which is the professor who does like a two or three minute deep and borderline nonsensical lecture about a topic that no 
no class ever covers, but that sure. is central to the storyline. Where it's, like yeah. it would be on demonology. Yeah. So yeah, like on your train of thought, Lauren, a lesser horror movie, and this is like the type of horror I was expecting of initially going into this. Of like it did have those tropes of like she goes to the party, and then when she has her freakout scene where she starts seeing demonic faces, it's of all the party goers, and she freaks out like after like this guy tried to like sexually abuse her or something crazy, right. and like that happens. And then like there's a, a whole scene where like there's a professor who teaches like fucking English, and for some reason is like teaching them the book of all the demons like the fucking grim grimoire of all the demon names yeah like today in college algebra we're gonna talk about wendigos <laughs> we're gonna talk about asmodeus the sixth prince of hell like yeah right the reason i think i got like six minutes into green inferno is it jumps right into a scene that is one of the worst college classroom scenes i've ever seen like it infuriated me and i as much as i love eli roth i couldn't go back but uh like they don't have any of that and instead i think they present college in this really interesting way that maybe comes from based on what you've said about the director's like personal experience where Emily is it seems like she's the first person in her household that's going to college and so it is this extremely isolating experience where you don't know what it is no one in your family knows what it is you don't have any friends you don't know what this environment is you're deeply religious you're from the country they do talk about college in the city wherever this actually takes place but I did think that was really interesting and kind of getting back to her running around campus, I loved that even though you're on a college campus, she's surrounded by people. She seems so isolated. Yeah. I don't know if it's yeah. the camera movements or what, but they do such a good job driving home how isolated she is. And I really liked that that first gen college student really plays into that story and kind of builds up with what happens. Well, they purposely show her with no people around. Always. You know, they talk about her roommate. You never see the roommate. Right. The roommate is clearly, like, off living her life doing something else while she's just kind of holed up in the dorm. You see, like, all these other people in this cafeteria scene. She's sitting basically by herself with her boyfriend in her own head, and she runs out by herself. It does show her isolated and kind of builds on that idea that she is very much by herself and in her own head constantly while she's there. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about, like, a lesser movie that would, like, totally fuck and fumble this i think the whole part where she like wakes up and smells the burning in her dorm room right Mm -hmm. and you could say that this is part of like the possession experience or whatever or the hallucination if we're going that route the the backdrop of it the camera filter everything is because of what's going on in her head but like (laughs) if it's not if that's actually her fucking dorm room um that place is a fucking hell dorm room at night (laughs) like that looked like a goddamn dungeon like are you kidding me well to that point Point. One thing that did crack me up was anytime that there is a demonic presence nearby, there is always kind of a purple light somewhere. There's like a purple mm-hmm. light bleeding like through a window or there's a purple light in a nearby building and it's very Argento. It's very much like an Argento kind of thing. Like when Tom Wilkinson runs out of the chapel and looks back, he sees the demonic figure standing in the window, like the shadow of it. And it's like through purple stained glass, you know, like there's little things like that where you have those color hits, but they're very much in that same vein of we're going to play this up a little bit and heighten the experience of these flashbacks to maybe reflect the fact that they're a little bit skewed from reality. So I I kind of appreciate that idea nice speaking of like settings of this movie like does every uh lawyer in the city just like go to one bar yeah by the way law bar law bar like <laughs> law bar. i mean 
mean, I know there, I know there are like lawyer bars in the same way they're like firefighter bars or whatever. But <laughs> that was pretty funny. Like when Ethan Thomas meets her there before the trial and is like trying to get her to like pass off the information that here's the plea bargain. And I love the way he delivers it too. He's like, "Here's the plea bargain. I don't fucking agree with it at all. If I had my way, this guy would be like thrown in jail for life. But you know, whatever. He better accept it because this is really cushy." She was like, "Oh, do you want a drink?" He's like, "No, I just water for me." <laughs> I do like how the movie really hammers on that Ethan is kind of a stick in the mud. That's fine with me because honestly, have you met a lot of lawyers? A lot of them are sticks in the mud. Yeah, true. Right. His performance to me was one of the more... Is more like a lawyer than actual courtroom dramas. Yeah, like it was one of the more natural performances in the movie and felt very realistic. And normally, I don't like Campbell Scott. He's kind of a stick in the mud in other movies. Like he's in stuff like Singles, Big Night, and Day Trippers. Like he's been in stuff that I like. He's just kind of always a little bit stick in the mud and dry, but that works in this case. Yeah. Oh, this role was perfect for him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it does make sense. I mean, maybe this is getting a bit too, you know, mind ready, but if you think about it, like here's a deeply devout Catholic man where he is in this courtroom and you have people that are like trying to take his faith and twist it to, you know, essentially like let someone escape justice. And so if you are someone who does have that rule based morality, again, definitely mind reading here and that faith i do kind of get why he would be a little bit angry sure oh yeah you know the part where he says what about silliness your honor yeah i could conceive of where that comes from and to campbell scott's credit in this role and again this might just be like the perfect role for him that was like written for him but the way he plays it is like he is trying to hold down his patience like you can tell he's a man who who really tries especially in the courtroom to never show his emotion because that's like giving away your cues in like a poker game but like there are some things that even he kind of like will outburst over a little bit and like his outbursts are effective but still contained because it is very much like that person who otherwise has like a stone face so when he's just like what about silliness like you said lauren it is a more effective even though it's not like as outbursty as like someone who's more loud or bombastic but well to that degree too and lauren you know this but a lot of times in court, both defenders and prosecutors will specifically say really abrasive and wild shit knowing that it's gonna get called and knowing the judge is gonna like try to like dismiss it but it's more the fact that you can say it and it's not gonna unring that bell for the jury Mm -hmm. if you say it and it's inflammatory you're still putting that bug in the jury's head whether the judge strikes it down or not and both Laura Linney and Campbell Scott in this movie have moments where they pull that trick or they kind of really get smart assy and over the top to prove their point knowing it's gonna get struck out again you can't unring that bell for the jury once they've already heard it right and i do wonder too i mean now i'm just on this defend ethan thomas rabbit hole but i kind of get the sense that he genuinely believes emily was sick yeah she is dead because of his negligence and then i also wonder how he feels about uh aaron bruner where kind of in the background of this whole story you find out that aaron bruner just won this huge case where there was a murderer and she was able to get him off where he wasn't punished and then turned around later and he did kill 
more people. And so you do kind of wonder for Ethan Thomas, he's like, I'm a prosecutor, I'm on the side of justice, I'm doing my job. Here's this slimy defense lawyer that's just gonna try and get this guy off and it's it's gonna be bad. And even on top of it, she openly tells him like when they meet in the bar prior to the trial, she's agnostic. She is not someone of faith either. You know, I think he is professional enough to not let that bother him. But you know, deep down, that's probably there's a bit of pettiness and judgmentalness there too. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when she does start basically trying to prove that like maybe demons are real and that's like their defense strategy and like that's such a smack in the face to him when you have someone who just basically told you outright that they don't believe pulling this shit in the courtroom Mm -hmm. Aaron I think a good part of our podcast is we do get a little bit into the background of the cast as well and really the big four in my opinion of this movie are Aaron Father Richard Ethan and Emily herself so who are some of these cast members like we've touched on Campbell Scott but maybe like what is more their backgrounds and what's Tom Wilkinson and Laura Linney like what are they known for specifically maybe in the horror route so this was Jennifer Carpenter's first big breakout role she was actually recommended to Derrickson by Laura Linney because they had worked on a stage play production of The Crucible together which talk about foreshadowing right Laura Linney is fucking MVP all over this movie man Mm -hmm. but Jennifer Carpenter was in Quarantine which was the US remake of Wreck she was also in Dexter which that's probably where most people know her from now she was in S. Craig Zoller's two most recent movies Brawl in Cell Block 99 and Dragged Across Concrete and she is currently on a show called The Enemy Within Tom Wilkinson is British actor starred off in British TV and movies he was in In the Name of the Father in 93 Antonia Bird who directed Ravenous we've mentioned on the show he was in her movie Priest he was in The Ghost in the Darkness which is kind of a corny movie now but I still like the story behind that is that the one with the lions yeah the the lions killing people yeah that's a movie I want to watch it's very 90s but it's it's fun he was in the full Monty he was in Rush Hour Shakespeare in Love he's in a really solid and I think underrated and underseen Ang Lee movie called Ride with the Devil which is a civil war drama of all things He was also in The Patriot, In the Bedroom. He was in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Batman Begins, Michael Clayton, where he is excellent. He was in some of the latter Mission Impossible movies, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, Selma. So he's been steadily working for ever. His Mm -hmm. performance in this, it's solid. You know, his his father, Richard Moore. But Father Richard Moore in this movie basically is like, have you ever seen Demon's Eyes? Black, lifeless, like a doll's eyes. Yeah, and I honestly like that he doesn't way play this role of, like, this role could be way hackier. Like, he could be doing, like, a fucking Irish accent. And drinking. Shakily drinking from a flask every other breath. This role could be, like, way hacky in the wrong hands. 20 demons went in. They all came out. (laughs) Emily's dead. Laura Linney was in Lorenzo's Oil. Dave... Congo. Oh shit, she was in Congo? Yeah. Hell yeah. She's in Primal Fear, where once again she is representing a priest. The Truman Show, The Mothman Prophecies, which we've covered on this show, Mystic River, Love Actually, The Squid and the Whale, Breach, The Big Sea, and now she is on Ozark for Netflix. Cool. I, did, I didn't mind her in The Mothman Prophecies, like she did a decent job, but the movie itself is the issue. The movie yeah. itself is the issue, and her accent is all over the fucking place in that movie. <laughs> that West West Virginia accent, yeah. But not really. Yeah. Like, yeah. One person that I will mention only to mention their spouse, the judge is Mary Beth Hurt, 
and she's been in a bunch of stuff going back to like the 70s. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize until I was kind of digging around, she's married to Paul Schrader? The writer? Yeah, like the writer-director. He's most well-known for writing Taxi Driver right. and Raging Bull. But he's somebody who has grown a lot, in my estimation, over the last couple of years. And he's one of those people that I have seen his movies for years and years and years, not always realizing that he was the writer or he was the director. He did this movie called Rolling Thunder, which is fucking badass that I just saw a couple years ago, which is 70s revenge exploitation with William Devane with like a fucking hook hand going after these guys that murdered his family. And Tommy Lee Jones is his buddy from Vietnam and they're just going like full (laughs) hardcore. Yeah. Holy shit. Mishima and Mosquito Coast. And Last Temptation of Christ, Bringing Out the Dead. He just recently did this movie with Ethan Hawke called First Reformed, which... I need to watch still. That's one I've been dragging my feet on, but I've heard nothing but good things about it. They're all movies about people that are like at these breaking points in their lives. That seems to be kind of what Paul Schrader's deal is. But I I bring that up because he directed the infamous Exorcist sequel, Dominion, which was like the prequel movie about the Max von Sydow character, like when he was younger in the Middle East and kind of first discovered all the demon shit. Stellan Skarsgård plays the Max von Sydow character, and that movie was completely taken away from Schrader Half of it was reshot by Rennie Harlan. So there's two different versions of this movie that exist. Yeah, because I saw The Exorcist, The Beginning. That's the one I saw, but I didn't know about Dominion. That's the one that got released in theaters. And then later they released Exorcist Dominion, which was the Paul Schrader version of the movie. And Mm. it's very different. It's very slow. There's not as much explicit supernatural shit going on in the movie. Yeah, because The Exorcist, The Beginning was one of the movies that killed my interest in horror for a while. That was like towards the end of like me putting up with going to see new horror movies in theater. And I'll say neither version of that movie works for me, but I'm going on the side tangent because I found it very interesting that A, Mary Beth Hurt that's in this movie is married to Paul Schrader and he directed one of the contemporary attempts at an exorcist-related movie, because this movie that we're talking about today was kind of the first exorcism-related movie that had come out in a long time. Studios were very iffy on even taking this movie because the idea of an exorcism movie was just such a fucking dead subgenre thing. But y'all remember, because now, after this movie came out, there was a huge flood of exorcism and, like, possession movies after this came out. Well, I was going to say, and around this time this this felt like a perfect time to capitalize on that because we had just gone through like all the horror remakes of j-horror and the texas chainsaw remake and all that kind of stuff lauren is once again shaking her head in disapproval okay lauren all right all right right, so wrong i I know we're gonna go off on another tangent lauren because i think this would benefit our listeners i have trashed and Naren has made no attempt to stop me. Uh, I have trashed mid-2000s, early-2000s horror. So, like, I want you to educate me because I know, like, a lot of my stuff is, like, skewed from, like, shit like Exorcist the Beginning, seeing that in theaters and, like, being like, that was terrible. If you look at, like, 2005, like, The Descent came out in 2005. See, I, mi- I missed the good shit. Yeah, There's I missed good the good stuff. shit. I can cherry-pick some good stuff from there. And as much as people want to shit-talk 90s horror in the same way, I think it's a generational thing because... 
because the Gen Xers love to fucking shit on like 90s horror, even though there's a lot of good shit that came out in the 90s. A lot of people like to shit on aughts horror now, and there's starting to be a lot of revisionism around those movies. For me personally, I'm not as hardcore about my hatred for that whole era as Derek is necessarily, but I am not about all the remakes, and I'm not about all of the torture Torture porn porn extremity kind of stuff okay that's kind of where my personal thing is and that's also where i kind of fell out of horror i've always liked horror but i was more going back and watching old stuff during that entire period because none of the contemporary stuff was really grabbing me at that time so i am definitely kind of a naysayer about aughts horror as well but there is good stuff in there certainly yeah i think a lot of it was just hollywood was in a weird place during that time in general and there's a lot of good stuff that came out in the 2000s obviously but the 2000s was also a very like paint by numbers let's figure out what movies we're gonna make off a spreadsheet kind of era unfortunately right but also i mean i would push back and say that every era of cinema has had a lot of paint by numbers like you do have you know the texas chainsaw massacre and then you've got a whole bunch of movies that are trying to do kind of something similar so actually i feel like this should almost be its own episode where i can prepare and i'm gonna stake my flag now we keep saying we're gonna get you on for like saw eventually i was about to say like we have been talking about this and what we want to do about saw i'm telling your listeners now i love the saw franchise i will plant my flag and i will die on the hill that the saw franchise is an amazing franchise you're not gonna have to defend the first one It'll be everything else after that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not going to disagree with that. (laughs) I think why I really like this era of horror is because this is when I started to get into horror. Sure. These were the movies that introduced me to horror and got me interested in it, such that I then started watching older stuff, started watching more of the classics, and really liked it as a genre. So I love Saw. I love Hostel. I love uh, The Descent. This was really just kind of that era for me. And so I do think that there are going to be bad movies, but I mean, I, I, I'm inclined to say that's true of like any era as well. Yeah. And so not to say that I do want to just cherry pick and be like, but this one movie came out, so the era itself can't be bad. But rather, when you take the works as a whole for any given year, there's going to be a whole bunch of works that are just not spectacular yeah well and i'd be lying too if i didn't say that the u.s remake of the ring and maybe even the first saw movie were like quintessential steps in my interest in horror like i still go up to bat for the ring u.s remake i like ringo but i actually like the u.s remake more but for every ring there's a grudge and like that was kind of where my headspace was at in that era of horror but i do like the original saw but then also i shut myself off from a lot of good shit too like you were saying like the descent i shut myself off from seeing emily rose because i thought it was trash horror for like a lot of the same reasons and like come to find out not only is it a great movie but it's a fucking scary effective movie for me as well you don't like the grudge i love the grudge i liked it at the time as a teenager but on every viewing after that it had everything i did not like about early 2000s horror of just like jump scare after jump scare after jump scare after jump scare and i feel like a lot of the american remake missed the point of the japanese original yeah i like the japanese movies i don't like the american ones personally let's talk about the real life case that kind of influenced this movie because i am very surprised going back and like doing some research how close so many 
of the story details from this movie do stick to the original story. Yeah. And there are some like big differences, but we're talking about a fictionalized adaptation of the same story. So again, the movie is based on the story of Anna Elizabeth Michelle, aka Annalise. If you were a free kid like me who was like oddly interested in this kind of shit and like listened to Coast to Coast a lot, you probably know this case a little bit. She was a young woman from Germany who was supposedly possessed and died as a result of the many exorcisms performed on her. So she suffered a seizure at the age of 16, which led to psychosis and depression. And after four years of psychiatric care, her condition just continued to worsen, leading to suicide attempts, increasing paranoia, seeing demonic faces and hearing demonic voices, rejection of all religious practice. She acted adversely during a trip to a holy site in Italy. She ate bugs, drank her own urine, increased medication, and just by the age of 21, her family was fully convinced that she was demonically possessed because nothing that the doctors and psychiatrists and medicines really solved the issues. Her parents reached out to the Catholic Church to do an exorcism, but the church was initially skeptical of the whole thing and denied. They kind of continued pushing that she get medical treatment instead, but eventually their request was granted in 1975 after multiple priests visited the family and confirmed her condition. And I want to say they even had multiple doctors. She had a lot of doctors. She passed through a lot of a lot of doctors over the years. Yeah, no one could really give a clear answer. But the church also asked that this entire process be kept in total secrecy. Her parents actually continued her medications, but stopped consulting doctors in her overall treatment at her request. And that's something that is different from the movie where a big part of this movie hinges on whether or not this epilepsy medication that she was prescribed played a part in her psychosis, played a part in her death, whether or not the medicine itself had a physiological effect on her that led to the exorcism psychologically not having the right type of impact it should have to like theoretically free her from the psychosis. There is all this back and forth in the movie about whether or not the medication came into play and the fact that she stopped taking the medication and in reality like she stayed on her medications the entire time but her parents did still push to get away from consulting doctors and move strictly to like the religious treatment so that's kind of the same. We see in the movie the one exorcism scene that happens that moves from the bedroom to the barn this girl experienced 67 exorcism rites over the course of 10 months and the extreme fasting over that period eventually led to her death due to malnutrition and dehydration and at the time of her death she only weighed 68 pounds both of her knees were broken as well from continuous kneeling so the trial began a few years later in 78 and it was massively sensational medical experts attested to her conditions the defense played audio recordings of the exorcisms kind of like we saw in the movie they claimed that she was possessed by multiple demons including lucifer Cain, Judas Iscariot, Belial, Legion, and even Hitler and Nero. I saw that, yeah. Hitler and Nero. Sure, right? That whole scene in the barn where she speaks in multiple languages and names a different demon in a different language, that is kind of the movie nodding to that aspect of the real-life story where she claimed that these six or seven specific demons were in her. Yeah. The bishop ultimately claimed that he had no knowledge of her medical history or condition prior to approving the exorcism, which kind of washed the church's hands of the priest's 
actions a little bit. The two priests involved in the exorcisms and the parents were charged with Annalise's murder. The priests were found guilty of negligent manslaughter and sentenced to light prison time and a fine. Kind of in the same way that this movie were like, we find you guilty, but like, eh, we're not really going to like make you serve any time. Like kind of the same thing here. Mm-hmm. And the parents were excluded altogether from sentencing due to the hardships and suffering that they had already experienced. This case directly led to a massive reduction in officially sanctioned exorcisms and Germany as well as like the rest of Europe so this was kind of the one that got the church in trouble a little bit so they kind of backed off on the entire idea and only going for the most extreme instances well I almost brought this up actually as a uh, recommendation earlier in the episode but as a recommendation kind of based off this movie right during the time when I was listening to a lot of coast to coast because you know despite my skepticism and a lot of things I still love listening to like tales of supernatural like even if I don't believe it I love learning about like cryptids and ghost hauntings and everything else like that shit always fascinates me and a lot of like my coast to coast listening was like the crazier the better but every once in a while they'd have like a genuinely interesting guest on sure one of those moments was they had this guy named matt baglio who's a reporter that actually lives out in rome and he was on talking about this book he wrote called the right the making of a modern exorcist and i believe they actually made the right movie mm-hmm. r-i-t-e with anthony hopkins yeah and it's also like a possession based you know warrior priest kind of movie but the book is very like boring and i mean this in a good way like it's very just presenting the case and like however you want to interpret it is however you want to interpret it but basically he interviewed over 20 exorcists and then sat in on like over 30 quote-unquote exorcists for the catholic church and he goes into the whole thing like i think he actually touches on this case specifically in the book as to why the church is extremely hesitant nowadays to like ever invoke the right of exorcism and he spends like a lot of chapters discussing how like they almost to the point of like what you would think skeptics would do throw medical treatment at them basically like they have to go through all these medical analysis and treatments and whatever before they even consider giving an exorcist and even then sometimes they're like no 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 bro like that's not how we do it and the church actually like i think for a while officially like it's kind of like the idea of area 51 right we all know it exists but does it really exist and that's kind of like what the church's modern take is yeah the church claimed plausible deniability about it for a long time yeah but the interesting thing about this book is as he's documenting some of the exorcists he sits on is that it's almost treated as if it's like counseling like they have to come for multiple rites of exorcism depending on like how quote-unquote bad they are they would have these people come in multiple times to like do this stuff so you know if if that sounds like something you're interested in check out the right uh by matt baglio it's a it was an interesting read and it's surprisingly a lot more factual based and less zany goofy supernatural shit than you would think it would be so what's really interesting about that is the other day i was doing some research trying to find different cultural practices and one i thought of was exorcism and so i was googling to find modern exorcism and i pulled up quite a few articles that have said that in the last few years there have been sudden spikes in certain places around the world so mexico within the last few years has had a spike 
in the number of exorcisms. There were countries in Europe, I want to say it was France and Italy, have had sudden spikes in the number of exorcisms that have been performed and reported. Now, I am not an expert. These were very quick read-throughs of these articles, so if you guys want to verify that information uh, on your own, definitely search and look at, you know, reputable news sites rather than listening to me. But they were saying that there has been this sudden uptick in exorcisms in specific parts of the world within the last few years. Hmm. Spooky. Well, I know, and I, I did remember, like, reading about how there was fucking dumb shit pastors who, quote-unquote, did exorcisms for the spirit of America at Trump rallies and stuff. So, you know, there's those people as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's where, like, it's hard to take a lot of it seriously. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's the same reason why I have a hard time taking modern American Christianity seriously, because clearly a lot of the people in the country that claim that that's what they are and what they believe in a thousand percent don't actually follow any of the tenets of that. They are usually completely against it. You also don't believe ghosts are real because you're no fun and don't like excitement in your life. I mean, sure, whatever. Say <laughs> say, say what you want about it. <laughs> I love fucking with you over that. So, I mean, I, I love the idea that ghosts are inherently exciting here, right? Like, what if it's a ghost of a really boring person? Yeah. Well, I mean, they probably are mostly boring. Like, apparently with a lot of, like, actual ghost hunters, they say that job is in general very boring <laughs> that's because ghosts don't exist they don't find anything yeah <laughs> yeah you're yeah. just listening on mics and picking up conversations that are happening like three blocks away yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was that bro i think the ghost went that way flexing muscle yeah <laughs> but to kind of wrap up our conversation about this movie i do genuinely appreciate this movie even though like i do not find this movie to be that scary and i find some of the supernatural stuff to even be kind Kind of a little bit over the top and how it's presented. I think the fact that to a person in real life, this was all real to the point where they committed harm to themselves and others and people genuinely tried their best to help this girl because of the process that they undertook. She's dead one way or the other. And that's tragic. That's always tragic, right? Mm -hmm. And so this movie kind of presenting that same story and causing people to, like, reflect on kind of what they believe, who they hope to be responsible, it's interesting. And of all the horror movies that I've seen, I don't really know that I've seen any others that had such an interesting tone and story dynamic as far as, like, the courtroom drama aspect of it. You know, lots of procedural thriller kind of movies where you see, like, the investigation part of a story, but you don't necessarily see the back-end trial part of it. You know, the only other movie that I can kind of think of that's like that is Citizen X, which was, like, an HBO movie about the Russian serial killer Andre Chikatilo and that movie really only gets into the courtroom drama part of it at the very end and it's a very different process because it's all fucking weird Russian courts it's not relatable in the same way that this is relatable where like this courtroom could be your courtroom it looks very bland you know it's regular people regular time it's drab outside like it looks just very much like a courtroom you've probably been in before yeah and like I, like I said about even the possession in this movie it's a very Americana supernatural yeah. horror movie. It's right. kind of out of time and it is very relatable in its mundaneness. So I appreciate it for that aspect because it does just help heighten the horror stuff that much more. Like we've talked about over and over, Jennifer Carpenter's performance in this is 
killer. She's fantastic. Everybody else is pretty good as well, too. Like, it's solidly written. The execution is consistent and good. Again, some of the horror effects are kind of goofy, but this movie is, at this point, 16 years old. It wasn't fucking goofy to me, man. <laughs> like, it worked on me. Shit, we haven't even talked about the music. Fucking Christopher Young did the score for this movie, and this is a movie where the score does a lot of heavy lifting mm -hmm. as far as the tone and the mood and making the jump scares effective. Here's just some of his horror titles that I can think of. Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Invaders from Mars, Hellraiser 1 and 2. The Hellraiser score is fucking amazing. Tales from the Hood, Species, Urban Legend, The Grudge. He apparently did The Dorm That Dripped Blood in yeah. 1982. <laughs> he did Drag Me to Hell that I mentioned a little bit ago. He did Sinister. He did the Pet oh, Cemetery wow. remake. Um, and for the third week in a row, I'm going to mention it, he just did the score for The Empty Man. So, you know, he's been working forever and has done a lot of horror stuff, but the score does a lot to help this movie as well. So overall, even though I do not find this movie to be that scary, I'd still recommend it. I think it's a solid entry into like the exorcist movie subgenre. I have seen way worse exorcism based movies than this one. This is one of the better ones. This is definitely one of the better ones. And I think like where it goes ultimately is worth the price of admission at the end of the day because I, I think the ending at least kind of leaves you questioning what was happening still even though like the trial itself is wrapped up you're still kind of wondering how much was in people's heads how much was real etc so it achieves what i think derrickson set out to accomplish with the movie which was bring a sense of ambiguity and kind of have people at least question things right for me this feels like a perfect sunday afternoon horror movie where it's sunday afternoon you want to relax you want to watch something scary and kind of get that thrill get that emotions experience that story but you also want to be able to like lay down and go to sleep at night and i think <laughs> Unless you are Derek, apparently, I think this movie is, is perfect for that. It's very atmospheric. It's beautiful. It's so well performed. I love this movie and agree. I would wholeheartedly recommend it. I'm over-exaggerating a little bit. I slept fine, but it did scare me pretty good. I didn't know what I was getting into, but at the same time, it scared me really, really effectively, but it also captivated me a lot more than I was expecting it to. <sighs> I mean, for horror newbies, like, again, if demonic possession isn't really the thing that freaks you out like I think this is a good starter horror movie even it's one to definitely like check out if you're looking for that early 2000s mid 2000s like solid horror and something that's interesting that's trying to do something that's different than other movies I wish Carpenter was in more modern horror doing like body contortions because that shit was effective I still will say like one of the worst jump scares I've encountered since we started this podcast was him waking up and seeing her on the ground like frozen in that contortion stare at him with her mouth agape god damn was that scary I, I was a little worried halfway through the movie of like is this movie gonna try and be like pro like religious by the end and it doesn't do that like it's a hopeful ending but also still very bleak because at the end of the day emily is still dead and like her the, those all those relationships people had with her are gone so it, I, I think the ending is effective in the balancing act of bleakness and hopefulness but at, it also like
like Aaron was saying, like you said, Lauren, like it keeps it open enough to like where I don't think it has an agenda. It's not trying to like convert anyone. And I appreciate that, like, because I really was worried it was going to be like, this warrior priest conquered Satan and his legions. Yeah, and got off scot-free. And like, he really didn't. You know, he may not be in prison, but he was still found guilty. And like, he's going to be haunted for the rest of his fucking life. And again, he loved Emily. He probably like took care of her since she was a baby. And, you know, she died under his care in a lot of ways. So, yeah. All right. Cool, cool. That is about it as far as our thoughts go. I guess let's go ahead and call it, y'all. So that is going to be it for this week. Uh, Once again, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast where your boy Mansfield, the apparently completely callous and not afraid of anything, nothing ever bothers me, just, you know, all the anxieties of the real world and, uh, you know, financial insecurity and family insecurity and, you know, just all the real life things apparently is the only thing that bothers me yet Derek here is uh, scared of every time a door slams apparently so (laughs) you are the scarecrow who is addicted to his own fear toxin and you don't believe ghosts are real and you don't believe in cryptids and And you don't like fun in your life our wonderful guest once again Lauren (laughs) thank you for coming on and uh, setting us straight about aughts horror we are definitely going to get you back on to talk about that some more later so thank you once again you're very welcome thanks for having me this is fun yeah and that that makes like what number six or seven for you appearing on our show yeah i mean there's fewer of my appearances on the show than there are saw sequels so (laughs) we've got some room to explore yeah we're getting there we're we're just gonna have to do a whole series with you right we're gonna have to keep bringing back threads we're gonna have to keep bringing back characters it's it's got to get intricate I think what we'll probably do is cover the first movie and then bring you back for a Saw franchise episode once uh, Spiral comes out. I wouldn't blame you for uh, just putting me in a room with a recording device and just letting it go. Just seeing what (laughs) happens. But yeah, that's going to be it for this week. You can check us out on all the podcatchers out there at this point. We are basically on all of them definitely leave reviews and subscribe at apple podcasts and on spotify and on podbean pod chaser too pod chaser as well and once again thank you to my little brother jesse mansfield for the music bumps at the beginning and the ends of all of our episodes you can find yep, yep. more of his stuff on Bandcamp under party gator or opossums or many of the other side bands that he has linked off from there right now so definitely check out his stuff I don't know if we've ever, like, called attention to the actual music, but, like, your brother makes some killer shoegaze. It's pretty good. It's good shit, like, yeah. It's, it's good shit. Um, also, too, speaking of music, we have our own Watch If You Dare Spotify playlist. The link to it is on our Podbean website, or go to our Twitter at Watch If You Dare. It's pinned on top of our Twitter page, and there's just, like, a bunch of songs that deal with horrific themes, or they sound creepy. Check it out if you want to add some creepy music into your life. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Five stars us or just don't do it at all or or just do that would help yeah just do (laughs) (laughs) i mean no if you're gonna do it five stars or nothing come on (laughs) (laughs) but yeah anyway that is gonna be it do we have any final thoughts sally's exist whether you believe in them or not one two three four five six six